everyone. Welcome to episode 57 of the Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we have a different sort of episode today. It's going to be a little bit, I, I hesitate to say short because we never know how long yeah. it's going to go in time until we finish gabbing. I don't think it's going to be short because we have, we're, we're doing a bit of a mashup, I suppose. Right. We're going to have a short episode of our own what do we call them? Segments. Segments. Yeah, we're going to um, tell you what we've just read and a little bit about a biblio adventure we just went on. Right. But then we're going to have the interview that we did last month with Anne Boyd Rue up at Orchard House in Concord, Massachusetts, and also with Jan Turnquist, who's the executive director of Orchard House. Right. So we wanted to bring you guys along with us on our joint jaunt, and we recorded a couple interviews with them. And the reason we've held off on sharing them is because Anne's book is going to be published on August 21st, which is... The day the, this yeah. episode comes out. So yes. that's the reasoning behind our behavior. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard for us to hold back information. Right. It was an exercise in discipline for That's us. That's right. Yes. Yeah, I'm not very good at discipline, so it's good to practice, <laughs> especially around books. Yes. <laughs> so right. should we talk about what we've just read? Sure. You want to go? Sure. I finished Buttermilk Graffiti, A Chef's Journey to Discover America's New Melting Pot Cuisine, and it's by Edward Lee, who is a restaurateur. He has three restaurants, actually, in Louisville, Kentucky. Wow. And yes, it is pronounced Louisville. I learned that when my son Jacob was down in school in Kentucky when I started to say Louisville, and yeah. people didn't like that. You just kind of merged it all. Yeah. Louisville. Louisville. <laughs> and the restaurants are 610 Magnolia, Milkwood, and Whiskey Dry. He has three restaurants, which I wish I knew about when I was traveling back and forth a lot to Kentucky. He's also won an Emmy for the series Mind of a Chef. He has a documentary out called Fermented. I haven't seen either of those. They're definitely high on my list now. And his cookbook, which the name of which I couldn't remember on the last episode, is called Smoke and Pickle. But this book is one that he wrote, and it's really a book. It's not, you know, a cookbook, where he went out into different geographies across the United States because there was a particular immigrant population in those places, and he wanted to learn about the food that they were making and then put his own spin on it. And so at the end of each chapter, there are two or three recipes that he's kind of taken what he was studying with that particular group and put a spin on it. And I thought, since I'm with my friend that has a little dramatic background, I thought I would read to you a part, I'm trying to remember where he went to study the food of Germany. Oh, he went to Michigan. Yeah. To Michigan. Yeah. And I thought I would just read this little paragraph because I thought Chris would appreciate it. So this is his, his exploits in learning about German food. When we eat a hot dog or drink a beer or crack into a loaf of multigrain bread, do we think about Germany? German immigrants were one of the first groups to come to the United States, and their contribution to food has been so deeply absorbed that, for the most part, we consider it just American food. Is that the ultimate goal of assimilation? Disappearance? Does the fact that German food has so deeply infiltrated our food identity mean that it succeeded in its goal to assimilate, or in that process did it fail to carve out its own cultural and historical identity? I wonder if, in a hundred years, Americans will eat bibimbap without knowing where it came from. Isn't that already happening to foods such as tacos and pizza? 
Or can we go back and recalibrate these beloved foods every time a new wave of immigrants comes to America? I just Great loved point. that. Yeah, yeah, I loved that paragraph. And, it, you know, as I mentioned, I think, in the previous episode, his writing is beautiful. He studied writing at New York University, and it's a pleasure to read. Mm-hmm. Just a pure pleasure. I was really sad when I finished. Oh. <laughs> very cool. You know, I don't read about food very much, but that is one that's tempting me. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. might be cool as an audiobook, do you think? I bet it would. I wonder if he narrates. I don't know. But um, the other thing is, I will say that There are definitely some recipes in here that I intend to try. There are also some recipes, you know, that are a little too out there for me, like Mm -hmm. beef tongue and, you know, things like that, that I probably just won't go to the effort to try to make. But some of them are really great. And he's, he uses really interesting spices. And I used to live near an Air Force base and we had really wonderful Asian food stores. And I haven't quite figured all that out since I've moved to Guilford. So I need to work on that maybe go to yeah. New Haven or something and find yeah. some of these ingredients that he uses I so. know that there's a good Asian store across from the natural food store in New Haven okay yeah I ha- I've been told that several times yeah. so I need to make a, a trek so again that was Buttermilk Graffiti by Edward Lee I just read I finished The Prisoner in the Castle by Susan Aaliyah McNeil it has a beautiful cover isn't it a cool cover it's yeah. really a and, and it looks different in different light, too. This was the 8th Maggie Hope. I believe it's the 8th. Uh, in the Maggie Hope series. And Maggie is a prisoner on an island in northern Scotland, off the coast of northern Scotland, where they send agents who have either kind of washed out or who know too much and they're afraid they might talk. So she's on this island with what, like 11 other prisoners, and there's a family of caretakers. It's a husband and a wife and their son who are caretakers of this old Scottish mansion that was built by this crazy rich Scottish guy back in the day who had snapped and killed all of his guests and then himself. Mm, So it has... Creepy. Yeah, it has that (laughs) history hanging over it. And then it's during World War II. It's an island, and submarines are a threat, obviously. And on the cover of the book, the main thing on the cover is a profile of Maggie from kind of the waist up. But in the background, you can see the the castle in the background, or the great house, and then the submarine back there. So there is a submarine element. There is some back and forth between one of Maggie's champions, back in London, who they need her to come and testify at a court case, apparently dealing with some serial killer from a prior book Mm. who was killing female SEO agents. So they're trying to find Maggie. No one can find her because Mm. she's in this secret location. Time is running out because the prisoners on the island are starting to be killed one by one in really different ways. So it does have that... Agatha Christie, and then there were none feeling about it. Right. And it has the World War II submarine element to it. But then there's this whole storyline that kind of pops up that I didn't expect to happen. Which was quite interesting, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Another good read. I enjoyed it. And as I have said before, I look forward to going back and reading from the beginning of that series. Because this is the first one you've read. Or this did is you the read? second the one. The second one. Yeah, the okay, other one right. I read was that's The right. Paris Spy. Oh, that's right. Which was that's last right. year. Yeah. This one just came out 
It's out in hardcover now. It came out like a week or two ago. Perfect. Yeah. Great. So Prisoner in the Castle, Susan Ilya McNeil. I just finished reading Small Animals, Parenthood in the Age of Fear by Kim Brooks. I believe this was one of the big buzz books when we went to Book Expo, and it says it's coming out in August. I believe it is out now. That is the book you so enthusiastically tweeted about. Yes, because when I closed the cover, it's one of those books where you feel like, I have to talk to somebody about this. Poor Chris. (laughs) Because I don't know anyone else who's read it. Um, The basis of the story is that Kim, this is a memoir, and Kim was in a rush to get to the airport and needed to stop and pick up, what do you call it, headphones Mm -hmm. for her son because she had been visiting her parents and they had misplaced it and he uses them on an airplane to be entertained. And they get to the Target parking lot, and he's in the middle of doing something. He's four years old, doesn't want to get out of the car. So she says to herself, I'm just going to run in, grab this. I know exactly where it is in the store, and run out. She does that. Everything's fine. He's in the car. She drives home. She flies home. And when she gets off the airplane, her husband greets her white-faced. Her parents, a police officer had come to her parents' home, knocking on the door, because she'd been driving her parents' car. Mm and said, you know, someone recorded you, your child alone in the car while you were in Target shopping. And she goes through a very long period of a, having to get lawyers and, you know, is she going to go to jail? All this kind of that's stuff. That's just crazy. Like, is it illegal to leave your kid alone in the car? Well, that's a lot of what the first half of the book is really her exploring, you know, parenthood and the way, first of all, parenthood has changed And there is a lot of fear-mongering, and there's also kind of a... Not only is it the age of fear, but it's also kind of judging your fellow parents, Mm -hmm. you know, and how they choose to parent. And it does seem like... I mean, my kids are of a much different generation than her children, you know? So even, like, I know people who won't let their kids taste cookie dough now when they're making it because they might get salmonella. You know, like, that risk was there when I was making cookies with my kids, but I never, it never prevented me from letting them like the batter, you right. know, the, you know, the spatula or whatever. So I think it's almost like there's so much more information, but there also is the ability now with social media and those sorts of things to just kind of judge people, you know? Yeah. Ugh. I mean, but, we got left in the car all the time. Really? I can still hear my dad saying, don't touch anything. We'll be right back. Yeah. You know, because you didn't want to drag your kids traipsing through the store. Right. Anyway. I had very mixed feelings about it. I mean, that's what was hard for me as a parent. I did not leave my children in the car. I one time ran into the bank. And when I came out, it was with Rachel, my oldest Rachel, and a friend of hers. And they were so hot and sweaty. I was like, oh, my God, I almost did the thing that everyone talks about. Never once yeah. again did I leave. Well, them in the what car. about you as a kid when you were a kid? I don't remember being left in the car. I now I was left at rest areas and gas stations on many occasions because we traversed the country in a big camper. And my parents would yell in the back, "Is everyone here?" And there were four of us. And several times the answers were yes, but they didn't know I was the baby and I was like still at the gas station. True story. Obviously, I'm here today yeah. to tell the story. But so, did you um, get left home alone? As a kid? Were you a latchkey kid? Um, I don't remember that happening until I was probably around 10, which is the age when I was a, felt like I could leave my kids at mm-hmm. home, too. But I definitely did not leave my kids in the car. And to leave them in the car at 
target. Now, the interesting thing, though, is what she talks about is your child will get stolen, mm-hmm. kidnapped. That was never my fear. My fear was like, you know, they could hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, they could start to eat something and choke. And there they are in the car by themselves, you know. So it was more a fear of that mm-hmm. than someone kidnapping them. Because she does a lot of research about, you know, the number of child nabbings is so low when you really study. And she, so the, the first half of the book was a little slow because it was almost a little too journalistic for me. Mm-hmm. The second half is more personal and really talking about her feelings. And she interviews other parents that had some of these same problems. She also talks to, or I don't know if she actually talks to them, but she talks about the parents who drive to work and completely forget their babies yeah. in the car and they come so, out of work so, and so, their yeah. child is no longer living. That's, yeah. Right? Right. I, you know, I, I guess my perspective is skewed because I was the younger one and my sister was five years right. older. So if my parents left me in the car and I was five, my sister was 10. Right. So that's it's a big difference. It's a big difference. Yeah. Right. She could go and get help or something. I mean, right. he was a four year old kid in the car, right? Oh, right. It's hard. Yeah. I mean, I was really struggling, but there is this one little passage that I thought I would read to you where that kind of speaks to what she's talking about. And she's talking to someone here who says to her, I don't think our psychology has changed. I think people are prone to judgment because as social creatures, we're very focused on social hierarchy, how we compare to others, where we each fall on the ladder, and whether we're moving up or down. People have always used outrage or disapproval of others as a way of advancing in the hierarchy. I think what's changed is that it's just so much easier to do it now. Easier, she, Kim asks, to judge each other, to condemn or critique. Technology has vastly increased our ease and access to judgment our opportunities to disapprove of each other, to feel outrage at what others have done or are doing has become unlimited. At any moment, I can plug myself into a community and try to manipulate my place in the hierarchy by expressing judgment. We don't have to go out and kill a buffalo and bring it back for the tribe anymore to move up the hierarchy. We just open our browser. Hmm. And, you know, that part was really interesting to me. I mean, right, someone had a cell phone with a camera and they videoed it Mm -hmm. and they called the police and they showed them. You know, I mean, it's a different world than when we were kids, you know. It is. But, like, how weird of that person. Like, Mm -hmm. I... I think I would have stood there and waited Mm -hmm. for somebody to come back just to make sure the kid was okay. Right. Well, that's the difference is you're concerned whether the kid's okay or you're concerned whether this is a bad mother, right? Yeah. And and that's another thing she addresses is also how we treat men and, you know, fathers and mothers differently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if the father was doing it, you know, a lot of studies show it'd be like, well, he had something really important he had to run off and do. And she talks about one woman who left all three of her kids in a minivan while she ran into Starbucks. And her kids were older. Mm-hmm. And she just happened to be a lawyer. I think maybe even an assistant DA. And she comes out, and the cop is there kind of harassing her children. And she's like, what's going on here? And he assumes, because there's a nail salon and a Starbucks, that she was just in getting her nails done. Wow. You know? So it's like there's just so much judgment. There is. There's, so there's that part of the book about judgment, but then there's also the part just about how we are a more fear-mongering society now. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting, and it made me sad for parents, you know, that there's that aspect of parenting now that you have to contend with. Right. You know? I can't imagine. I, I think just even watching the news, like I don't watch the news on TV anymore because it is just so fear-mongering. Right. And then even social media or reading the news online, you have to be really mindful. Yeah. 
and protective of yourself and what you're consuming and mm-hmm. and, and know what's real and what's and, not real. yeah and to have yeah. kids on top of it right trying to educate your children and help them become critical thinkers about what they're seeing and reading right but then the judgment of other parents right because I hear that I you know I hear that about people just with how much or how little they let their kids watch TV mm-hmm. or have snacks or even, like you said, you know, lick the batter. Right. Which is one of, I, I remember being a total joy of being a child. Right. And, yeah. you know, still as an adult. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't like to lick the beater up now and again? So, but, you know, it's funny because, you know, I my son Jacob is 24. He's home right now. He's about to drive literally across the country. And I was laying in bed this morning like, Verklempt, you know, like, oh my God, he's gonna, this is, he's driving across the country, I'm afraid. And I just, I had to stop myself and just say, look, you know, that is not a healthy thought process. He's gonna be fine, mm-hmm. you know. But I think there's an innate thing too that we have that we can all tap into about fear and danger and risk because we see it. The author Brene Brown has a thing she calls foreboding joy. Where we think, it's like we almost can't think about the good things. We have to think about the terrible, awful things that can happen. And part of that, she said, is psychologically because of the images that we see in front of us so often now. Mm -hmm. Because of all the exposure we have to 24-7 news and things, these little computers in our pockets. We can see the headlines instantaneously when something terrible happens. Right. And, and just talking about fears, like we all have different fears, mm. but every type of fear gets tapped yeah. online, yeah. I think. Yeah. So I highly recommend it. It is a book you're going to want to talk about, I think. And again, it's called Small Animals, Parented in the Age of Fear by Kim Brooks. So does she have advice for people? And if she does, could you give share one of those just so readers leave with feeling a little, a little better? bit of something to hold on to to calm them? (laughs) No, I don't think she really did. I mean, I think for her it was about... I mean, I think there was a sense of relief because what she ended up having to do was just community service. And there, she also, I mean, not to keep talking about it, but she talks about, you know, she's a privileged white woman and the treatment she got, she thinks, was probably much different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she didn't get cuffed and hauled away. She does have a husband, so it's not like her children would have necessarily... Well, I mean, they, they did come and, you know, check her house and do all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, I don't think they would have been taken away from the home, but she may have been taken away from the home, you know. No, I, it was really more a study in where we are, mm-hmm. I think. I don't, okay. I don't feel like there were many uplifting thoughts of how to improve it. I think it was a glimpse of society the way it is today and mm-hmm. parenting today. I mean, I do think she said, you know, it's about choices mm-hmm. and you know, you, that she is choosing not to parent with fear. She talked to the woman, there was a very big case recently of a woman who was working at, doing her work at McDonald's and her nine-year-old daughter was at the park down the street with lots of people right by school and she was reported and her daughter was put in foster care and she lost her job. It's really about, I think there needs to be a societal change. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, I will say, this is my soapbox, and it's interesting because the interview you're going to hear with Anne Boyd Rue, she talks about Joe and how women can't do everything at once. You know, you can be a mother and you can work and you can be creative and all that kind of stuff, but you can't necessarily do it all at the same time. And I think what we've failed to do well in this country is daycare. Mm-hmm. 
And I feel very much for working parents with that, Yeah, you know, so, which is kind of a complete aside, but that's where a lot of people do get into trouble with their kids is, you know, they're trying to do something like work. Right. <laughs> they need to yeah. find options for their kids. Oh and God. it used to be that you could be outside with a group of friends in the neighborhood and kids are so programmed now that that doesn't exist as much, you know? Yeah. So, so, so fascinating. Yeah. I mean, then even the horrors of daycare where... Yeah. Kids dying yeah, in daycare, yeah, like, yeah. it's such a minefield. Yeah. So, no, again, to get answer your question, I don't feel like that was the point of the book. I think it was just to offer some insight into where we are yeah. as a well, society. Well, it's a memoir. Yeah, it's, it's a, a memoir. memoir. So, yeah. She, yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I yeah. lost vision for a minute thinking yeah. she no. was, yeah, yeah, but it's a memoir, so she's yeah. talking about her experience, her experience and yeah. looking at the larger picture of yeah. society, not necessarily a book about how to deal with these things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Boy. Yeah, you're going to want to talk about it if you read it. <laughs> and I have to say, this is also, I mean, this is sad to say, but I kind of felt like, I'm glad I'm not a parent of young children anymore. Yeah. It seems harder. Oh. <laughs> so. See, I never wanted to be a parent. <laughs> <laughs> it's a full-time job forever. Forever. Yeah, so I had that conversation with my soon-to-be 79-year-old mom. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> it never ends. No. So did you read anything else? I read one other thing. Mm, I did not. I read The Stars Are Fire, a novel by Anita Shreve. It's a novel, but it is based on true historical events in Maine in 1947 from October 13th to October 27th. There were 200 fires in Maine. I knew nothing about this. They consumed a quarter of a million acres of forest, wiped out nine entire towns, destroyed 851 homes, 397 seasonal cottages and left 2,500 people homeless. Wow. It was considered to be called the year Maine burned, 1947. Yeah. Amazing. So the main character, Grace, is living on a cottage right on the shore. Her husband, Jean, goes off and works. She's raising their two children. And the fires come. And it completely changes the future of her life. Her husband disappears in the fire, and she has to take care of her two children. She's never worked. She's lost her home. Not only do you lose your home, you lose everything, right? Yeah. Like at one point, they're like, well, do you have an ID? She's like, no, I don't, and I don't have a birth certificate, and, you know, right. I don't have clothes. I don't have money, right? Yeah. And so it, I, it was a very good story. It's a, to me, it was a page-turner. I would definitely consider it a beach read if you're looking for something like that. Super easy to read. Sadly, when I got to the end of the book and was reading about her, I didn't realize that she had passed away oh. in 2018. So this is her final novel as well. I, as far as I know, I mean, yeah. maybe there was something else in the wings. So, it, you know, it's just a, a story that you really get lost in. And it compelled me to learn a little bit more about Maine, which is my favorite state. And it also kind of made me want to drive up the coast again and look at some of the cottages. Because after the fire, the government built a certain number of cottages. Oh. And so there probably are some of the towns like Kittery and some of those little towns where you could probably see this, you know, historical nature of some of these homes. Now, of course, some of them have probably been added onto or torn right. down and mansions were built or whatever. But, you know, historically, I thought it was really interesting. I had, when I started reading it, I was like, is this true or not? You know, and <laughs> yeah. I, I Googled, I got friendly with the Google and sure enough, it's true. So, wow. yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So The Stars Are Fire, a novel by Anita Shreve. Mm-hmm. 
to adventures. <laughs> well, we went on a Bibli adventure together. Yes. It was so exciting. We went to um, RJ, Julia, and Madison, and they had Reese Bowen and Lucy Burdett there talking about their new books. Mm-hmm. And there was a surprise moderator, um, Hallie Efron, was yeah. there to kind of moderate the conversation. And it was such a fun event. It was packed. It was packed. We got there like one minute to seven. Yeah. And it was super packed. So we kind of snuck in to the other door and stood in the back. And people were still streaming in. Yeah. Uh, probably up until about five minutes after, I yeah. would say. Yeah. Um, so great turnout. Yeah, and these um, events where the authors are just talking to each other, where they're in conversation, is so fun. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it can get a little inside baseball, but I really like that. Absolutely. I think it's fun. Yeah. And Lucy Burdett has the Key West Food Critic Mystery Series, and the book that she was there to talk about was Death on the Menu, which is number eight in the series, I believe. And then Reese Bowen, I think she's incredibly prolific. Yes. But she was there to talk about Four Funerals and Maybe a Wedding, <laughs> which is part of the Her Royal Spinous Mysteries series. And I think this was number 12. And, and that's her second series. Or right. She said Several, two, I, think. I think. Yeah. More, yeah. 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 And she's English, mm-hmm. right? Lovely, delightful accent. And she talked about some of her comings and goings with the royals. Yes. You know? All of them were really interesting. I guess Lucy Burdett is a local, right? She's from Guilford, but she spends time in Key West, which is when she started to write yeah. this series. Yeah, and she's a she came to writing a little bit later in life. Right. Um, she was a psych, working psychologist right. for a long time and um, golfer. And I think she said that she started writing to deal with golfing. Right. Because I think her first series has something to do with golfing. Yeah, something to do with golf. Yeah, so I I thought that might be fun to check that out. Yeah. Um, But Reese was saying that she started writing at a very young age. Yeah. When she was, what, what, 18 or 19 or something? She got her first play. Right. She had written a play and just kind of brought it to someone at the BBC, right? And they were like... Yeah, we'll do we'll this. Do this. Yeah, because she worked for them. So, <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. So really, really fascinating. And I haven't read anything by either no. woman. And I, I definitely, they're so on my radar. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And then Haley Efron is the sister of Nora Efron, who's passed away. And she, I looked it up in her most recent book is Night, Night, Sleep Tight. She, I think she's a mystery writer amongst other things. I think she's written other or she's okay. a journalist or something. I don't know much about her. Yeah, she, I know she does a lot. And she calls herself more of a suspense writer. Okay. Because she was saying she writes books that are, you know, suspense books that are creepy but not gross or something yeah. like that. Like, you know, there's a little edge to them, but she doesn't go over it. No blood splatter, <laughs> maybe? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it was, was a really fun evening. It was. I enjoyed it very much. And uh, what I like about them, they're, they're all part of a group called Jungle Red Readers. Or, I'm sorry, Jungle Red Writers which they're on social media and they have a blog and everything. So they're, they're fun to read. They have, you know, they talk about books, they talk about writing process and different experiences and stuff, but I really admire how they all support one another. Yeah. This this group of writers. Yeah. It's really happy. And, And that's one thing that they talked about was how supportive the mystery writing community is, which is something I hear over and over at every 
mystery writing event or conference I go to. Yeah. And it seems to be quite true just from my limited experience. Yeah, it's really lovely, I think, because some people, I think, could probably see another author as competition, but mm-hmm. seemingly in the mystery world, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And we put some video. We did We did our first Instagram TV video of a little clip from that, and right. then we put a clip on our Facebook page, too, a different clip. So there are two out there. I have no idea about Instagram TV. Like, once it goes up there, how do you find it again? Who yeah, knows? I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> I know some people saw it, but yeah, I, yeah including yeah. me, but then I you couldn't know, find it I'll again. I'll put them on our YouTube channel. Yeah. Because that yeah. is something we know how to yeah. control. <laughs> and it's really, there's a really fun statement by Reese, especially. So I'll put the link to the video in our show notes to YouTube. Great. So the other Biblio adventures we're going to share with you are these two upcoming interviews that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. And this was a Biblio adventure we did as a joint jaunt together to Concord Mass a few weeks ago. And a reminder that Anne's book, Meg, Joe, Beth, Amy, The Story of Little Women and Why It Still Matters, is available starting August 21st. And Chris and I will be discussing it on our next episode, which will be available on September 4th. Coming out September yeah, 4th. There yes. is a discussion on our Goodreads group. So a reminder that that stays there forever. So if you read the book six months from now, feel free to go. And someone just put a really cool thing up about March, you know, right. by Geraldine Brooks. Yeah, so wonderful. it's like having a little online book group. And if you do get to it, we know there's only really like a week from pub date to when we're going to be talking about it. But if you do get to it, if you wanted to have comments to us through email or social media, whatever, by August 30th, that would be great because we're going to record on August 31st. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, yeah. please let us know your comments, questions. Yeah, we'd love you. to hear from you. The book is getting really good reviews. Yes, it is. And I just loved our conversation with Anne, and I hope you guys will too. Anne Boyd Rue is a professor of English at the University of New Orleans. She's a recipient of two National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowships. And she's the author or editor of six books about 19th century American women writers. What drew you to Little Women? What drew me to Little Women? Um, I actually didn't read it when I was young, so I don't have that typical story of getting it from my mom and reading it under the covers over and over again. Unfortunately, I wish that I did have that story. I'm very envious of the women who had it, who had this book to really grow up on when they were young. Um, I first encountered it when I was in graduate school, so I would have been in my early 20s. And uh, it kind of hit me at the right moment, actually, because I was, you know, going through the identity crisis that you're still going through in your early 20s. I was in graduate school, but didn't know what my life held for me quite yet. Wanted to be a professor, wanted to write some books, wanted to have a family. How is that going to work out? And so Joe was this, like, real revelation to me. Because there's this line near the end of the book where she says, after she's married Professor Bear, and they've started this school together, and she says that she hasn't given up on her dream to write a great book someday, and she hopes it will be better for, you know, the examples that she has all around her, her experiences, basically, of, you know, being a mom and a wife and a teacher. And that line really resonated to me because it it made me realize you don't have, it doesn't have to be one or the other. 
right? Maybe you put things off for a little bit. Somebody told me that Michelle Obama, who recently gave a speech at the American Library Association, said that women can't women uh, can have it all, but maybe not all at once. Right. <laughs> I think that's yeah, I love that yeah. line. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of what Joe is saying, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it was helpful to me because it doesn't just because you get married doesn't mean you're putting everything on hold. Right, all of your other dreams and aspirations, and she's running a school with her husband, so she hasn't given up. And she's still a career woman of sorts. So Joe was Joe hit me at the right time um, in my early twenties, and I re- that you know I've kept reading the book over the years, been teaching the book, and the more I read it as I grow older, I see uh, my own experiences reflected in Meg's experiences as a young wife and mother, and now I'm starting to really identify with Marmy, right. who's the mother of adolescent <laughs> girls, right? right? Yeah. And so I, it's not, I made me realize that it's not a book for just girls, right? right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it can, it can mean different things to you at different times in your life, mm-hmm. and it's never too late to yeah. read Little Women. I agree. I, I came to it when I was in my 30s. Okay. And, uh, and I'd heard about it. It's one of those books I read a lot about, but I didn't really feel the need to read it. So when I finally did, it really blew me away. Mm. I was so surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And and Joe, of course, mm-hmm. she's as you talked about on, on Twitter. I know you did a poll, right, asking people which little mm-hmm. woman you identified most with, and so many people are on the you know team Joe. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Joe yeah. went out. Yeah, she did, but it still surprises me how many uh, are team Meg or Amy mm-hmm. or Beth. Beth is one that you would not expect people to say, oh, I've always been a Beth or I really identified with Beth. Mm-hmm. But there are so many women that I've encountered who really do. Oh, I'm it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. No worries. No problem. <laughs> well, and I just read it. You know, the book Cougars did a read-along right. in June, and that was my first reading of Little Women, and right. I'm 49. So right. I've heard about it. I don't know why... I never was exposed to it really as a kid. Nobody ever suggested it to me. It never came across my path yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. I, somebody told me that if your if your mother or grandmother doesn't give it to you, then you're probably not going to be exposed to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really true. My mother didn't didn't read it when she was young, and she didn't pass it down to me. Um, and so she didn't read it until I started working on this book. Okay. And she read it. She was like. Yeah, I think I was always Joe, but my family thought I was a Meg, you know, so it took her a long time to, you know, kind of let everybody in her world know that she was really a Joe. Mm -hmm. She had to break out of the Meg mold. And so even as a very mature adult, she was identifying with the characters. I think that really speaks volumes to what this book has meant to, to readers over the years. Yeah, and it's been interesting that our listeners, many of them had read it as children many times, Yes, you know, Uh and then they did a reread as adults, and some of them had really interesting reactions, and I think it's what you alluded to about the meaning it had for you reading reading it in your 20s, and as as someone who's middle-aged, I look back on my life and I see them as chapters, you know, I had the chapter where I was a kid, and then I had a chapter where I was a teenager, and then... I had my children really young, so I had a mother chapter that's right. now in my middle age moved into a mother of grown children chapter, right. you know, right. and so reading it, I definitely read it from the perspective as a mother, right. you know, and really identified with it that way. Right. One of the things we were talking about at this conversation series here at Orchard House today is that it's not, 
it's not a book just about girls. It's really a book about family, mm-hmm. right? And so that's, I think, why it's so easy to read yourself into the book at so many different stages of your life because this family encompasses more than just the four girls. And we see the four girls grow up, mm-hmm. or three of them anyway. Right. Yeah, so right. it's it, it encompasses so much. Um, it's kind of surprising how much she actually packed into this one book. During a time of war also, where there's a lot of stress on the family. And I think there are stresses on families at all different times. I mean, war is probably one of the most stressful. I'm not trying to imply that a bad economy necessarily is the same as your dad being off at war. But, you know, I think there's some of that, too, of how families... Right, and it's, I mean, in many ways, their family is not a conventional family, because Marmee's a single mother, basically. She is, right, yeah, Yeah. and I was going to ask about that, and with Branson Alcott, in your research, can you talk a little bit about Alcott's life? And maybe some of the similarities or differences right. with the women. Yeah. So there are some sim- there are a lot of similarities, but a lot of big differences mm-hmm. too. Um, she based the four sisters, Meg, Jo, Beth, and Amy, on herself and her three sisters. She actually was asked to write the book by a publisher, a book for girls, and her response was, "Well, I don't really." know many girls or like many so I don't know what I would say mm-hmm. <laughs> but then she realized you know I knew my sisters and maybe I could write a book about our experiences growing up and so book is um is based on her family uh the characters are loosely based on her family Mr. March Mr. Alcott obviously is largely absent from the book even after he comes back from the war right, right? Yeah. and like disappears yes. again um, and that's very interesting because if you look at the diaries and journals that family members kept, Prince and Alcott was gone all the time. He was off on lecture tours and visiting people. He wasn't around a whole lot. And I think there was also an element of her wanting to protect her father a bit and not really knowing how to put him in the book mm. without exposing him to censure and ridicule because he was a very controversial figure right. in his day. Yeah. Um, he had pretty, pretty, um, what's the right word? I call him a religious zealot. Okay, so he had very strong views. Um, he, he basically believed that we all needed to imitate Christ and that that was possible. Okay, Mm. so he expected his children to live a very self-sacrificial life, which was hard for them. And you see that in the book, right? Right. You see how the girls, you know, wish that they had more and they're trying to get by with less and accept that they have less and they're poor. The poor, the poverty actually is, you know, true to life in the sense that they were poor, but they're not near, the the marches are not nearly as poor as the outcasts really were. They were, I mean, they were receiving pretty basic charity from people, you know, most of the time Louisa was growing up. So we're talking mm-hmm. clothes, we're talking food. And one of her biographers says that she's basically starving, you know, growing up. She never had enough to eat. Part of that is because her father, you know, his principles wouldn't allow him to earn a regular wage, mm-hmm. you know, to have like the nine mm-hmm. to five job or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. It almost seems abusive. Really, I mean, in this day and age, I wonder how a, a family probably couldn't... Well, the mother and the girls had to they pick own. up the slack. Mm-hmm. Um, they took Abigail, the mom, she took in boarders, 
And um, she, you know, they're all doing sewing, whatever they could do. And there weren't, of course, a lot of options for a woman at that time. She couldn't just go down, you know, to the corner and get a job somewhere. Uh, she really had to, you know, be creative. And they did have a lot of boarders living in their house at various times. They also had um, kids who were being, who were basically boarding there and being um, educated at the same time. So they had kind of like a little school going on. Um, and Bronson would help with that some. But basically, it was up to Abigail and then the two oldest sisters, Anna and Louisa, mm-hmm. as they became old enough to work. And, you know, you look at the work that Meg and Joe were doing. Meg's a governess. Joe is what she's a companion, right, to, to Aunt March. Doesn't sound too bad. But in real life, the girls lived away from home in order to find work. They often weren't at home at all. The family was split up all the time because they were also one of the ways that family and friends um, gave them charity was or helped them out was they would take one of the daughters you know oh Beth can come or Lizzie I guess in real life Mm -hmm. Lizzie can come and stay with us for the summer or Mm -hmm. something to take that burden off of having to you know feed her and care for her Um, so the, the family wasn't all together under one roof a lot and I think that's that's part of what gives little women it's that kind of that message of the strength of the family, the importance yeah. of the family. And I think that's something that Louisa wished that, you know, they were able to have more of. Mm-hmm. Right, she was longing yeah. for it. She was longing yeah. for right. it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was wondering about that, how many young girls read it today and, and back then, wishing that they had a family that yeah. was like that and sibling relationships that were more like that. Because I know so many do long for exactly. better sibling relationship. And relationships with our parents, yeah. right? right? Because Marmy's such a wonderful mother figure. Mm-hmm. And then also Mr. March, even though he's not around very much, when he is around, you know, he's kind of a... a he, he really helps Joe out at certain times. And so it, it, I think it, there's this kind of nostalgic quality in some ways to Little Women, certainly the way it's been portrayed in movies. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of yearn for that time when family seemed more intact. And I, but it's important to remember that Mr. March isn't there for the first half. In the second half, Amy's in Europe mm-hmm. and right. Meg's already married and living away. And Joe is in New York. Right. Yeah. And Beth's at home, you know, dying. Right. And then Beth dies. And Joe, there's this really sad, sweet chapter called All Alone where Joe is dealing with the fact that she's all alone Mm -hmm. nobody's there anymore yeah it's just her and her mom and her dad and so the the, it's about i guess the family itself growing up and the dissolution of family and then the recreation of family right because in the end they're all together at harvest time right yeah but they've enlarged the family yeah yeah yeah. Added new members, including all the boys at the school say, and everything. Joe, Joe added a you know, <laughs> quite a few. <laughs> really extended the idea of family. Yeah, yeah. And then Alcott got her boys in because which, and then the next book, of course, Little Men, is all about the boys at that school. Right. And so she then she gets to write the little boys book that she really, I think, she wanted really to wanted write because she loved yeah. boys and she loved playing with boys and kind of thought of herself as a boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then what is Joe's boys about? Isn't there a book Joe's called? boys comes just chronologically after Little Men. So the boys at the school are growing up. So they're kind of almost college age, about college age in, in Joe's boys. And there's also um, a girl named Nan who they take into their school who's um, who basically, I don't think she has a mother. 
And so they're trying to, there's no school for her to go to. So mm-hmm. she comes to the school. She's a little miniature Joe. She's really okay. wild and she's, you know, she's very much a tomboy. And we see her grow up into a young woman in Joe's Boys who wants to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And there's this boy, I can't remember his name, who wants to marry her. And he's pestering all the time, wants to marry her. And she's like, no, I want to be a doctor. And Joe tells that boy basically, you know, leave her alone. Let her, this is her destiny. This is what she wants to do. And let her become a doctor. And she does become a doctor. So she was, so by the time she wrote Joe's Boys, which is 1886, so 18 years after Little Women, Alcott was able to have one of her female characters not marry, mm-hmm. um, which is something, you know, she wanted to do that for Joe, right? She wanted Joe to be a literary spinster, but felt this pressure to marry her off. She just swore she wouldn't marry him to Lori. Which is a little, um, oh, I can't think of the word, you know, she, she did kind of um, resist authority with that one, right? Well, she did, yeah, because she gave her what she called a, a funny match by giving mm-hmm. her this marriage to Professor Bear. Right. Seems to work, though. Yeah. I think girls hate it, right? Girls don't get, why would she want to marry this kind of, what he's described as kind of stocky and, you know. Right. Old. Older. Yeah, he's kind of old. <laughs> a little crotchety. Kind of beard. Yeah. yeah. He, he's he's kind of the anti-hero or the anti-romantic hero right. is the way I think of him. Non-Hollywood ending. Right. Yeah. But in some ways, Alcott's gotten a lot of flack, particularly from, you know, feminist scholars and readers for marrying Joe off at all and especially marrying her to an older man. And I think they kind of miss the whole point of what she's saying is that even though he's an older man, he's he's actually a really good match for her because he encourages her writing. Mm-hmm. Unlike in the movies, so the movies portray him as helping facilitate the publication of her novel, which is Little Women. Like she writes Little Women in the movies. Have you seen the movies? The mm-hmm. Just the one. I've, saw the, I've the, seen the this 94. One, yeah. 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 So that's supposed to be the feminist little women. And to me, it's not because they have Professor Bear get her book published. And in the book, of course, she doesn't write a book called Little Women, first of all. Right. (laughs) And secondly, she publishes a novel early in the book and all on her own without any help from him before she even meets him, actually. Yeah. And then afterwards, you know, she does burn her stories after he tells her that, you know, these sensation stories she's writing are kind of unethical, sort of immoral. And so she decides to go home, and that's when actually um, Beth dies. And it's after Beth dies, her mom tells her to start writing again, because right. that always made her feel better. Yeah. And so she starts writing, and she writes these stories and poems that really speak to people, right? Because they come out of her experiences rather than stuff she made right. up about, yeah. you know, yeah. cloak and dagger stuff. And so she's found her style at last, I think is what her father tells her. And publishers want to keep publishing her work. So she gains a measure of success on her own. And it's actually Professor Bear reads one of her poems, uh, the one about, I think it's called Two Bath, the one about Beth. Mm -hmm. And after reading that, he comes to her. So it's almost like her writing sort of calls out to him and they're sort of, you know, brought together through her writing, which is really very lovely. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, that the mom encouraged her to write through her grief, because I think writing through grief can be so healing. And right. Right. You know, Anne, as we're talking, it occurs to me, like, do you, as you were working on this book and doing research, did you ever get confused by you know, what was the story, Little Women, and what was the, the truth of Louisa's life? 
Um, not so much, not so much. But in in real life, I think they did get. Well, they didn't. The, they kind of knew what happened, in, you know, real life and what happened in the books. But there was this interesting blurring of identities because people sort of knew or assumed, um, or maybe I think the publishers actually encouraged this identification of the sisters with the real right with Joe with Louisa and and Meg with Anna and they um in fact you know little kids would write her fan letters and write it to you know dear Joe yeah dear Mrs. Joe because she was called Mrs. Joe in Little Women and in Joe's Boys yeah and uh write to her as if she was the character and say I can't believe you didn't marry Lori And there's an interesting letter that Meg wrote. I think it's in the the Penguin edition that I edited. They included a couple of letters at the end, and there's a letter that Meg wrote to a fan that had come while Louisa was away in Europe. And so Meg took the liberty. Meg, so hear what I'm doing. And Anna, the real-life sister, the oldest sister. Well, that's the answer to my question right there. So I do confuse the names a lot. I do confuse their names. So, yeah, so Anna uh, wrote this letter to this young fan in the voice of Meg and, you know, calling herself Meg and saying, Joe and Amy are in Europe right now and Beth really did die in real life, you know, this sort of thing. So it's really a sweet letter, but it shows you how much the family thought of this as a book about their family. And in fact, when it came time to adapt the book for the stage, what was that, 1912, I believe, was the Broadway adaptation. But for many years... The um, I'm, I can't remember her name right now. Is it Jessie Bonstell or is that it was Jessie Bonstell? But anyway, she wanted to write a play based on the book and 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 show it on Broadway, and she had to get the permission from the family because it was still in copyright. And by that point, it was Anna or Meg's oldest son, second son, I think, John Pratt, who had the copyright. He was sort of the overseer of the estate and he wouldn't give them permission for many years because mm-hmm. they thought, well, this is, this is our family story, yeah. right? And to see it put up on the stage that didn't, that seemed kind of sacrilegious somehow to them or, or, you know, a kind of infringement on their privacy because they really did think of it as their family. Could you tell us a little bit maybe about your career? Sure. And I, I know you said that you came to Little Women when you were in, in graduate studies. Right. Can you tell us maybe about your graduate studies to begin with? And yeah. So, well, the reason I went to graduate school, I guess, and it sort of became the thing that, that helped propel me through those many years, graduate study, was I really wanted to know, I wanted to understand what it had meant for women to devote themselves to serious artistry or authorship. Because I had studied in, as an undergraduate, I had studied lots of different art forms. I designed my own major. It was called Creativity and Its Relation to Culture. And so wow. I studied theater and art and literature. What most interested me was really simply the creative act. What does that require? Um, it seemed like it it seemed to me that it required quite a bit of, I guess, selfishness, right? That you have to kind of, like Joe, go up in your garret, right. shut the door. You have to have the support of your family, but then you also have to be willing to shut that door. And so how were women able to do this, right? It, just, mm-hmm. it still seemed very difficult for women, you know, this would have been in the late 90s to, or mid, actually mid, early 90s. <laughs> I finished in 99, so, and it went, yeah, from 1992 to 99, I was in graduate school. But they, anyway, that was the the sort of question that 
that motivated me, and I wanted to know at what point in time in our history women had started declaring, you know, I am an artist, I'm an author. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that it was the late 19th century. And so I did read Little Women in, in a graduate class on American Realism. Joe was a huge revelation. Obviously, she had all the ambitions that I was that I was thinking about and, and wanted to talk about. And so then I went and did all this research on Louisa May Alcott. I came actually to Boston and Concord, did research at the Houghton Library at Harvard, and you know just fell in love with this whole area. And then I also had three other writers that I wrote about in that dissertation, which became my first book: Constance Fenimore Wilson, Elizabeth Stuart Phelps, and Elizabeth Stoddard. And then um, my next book was actually a biography of one of those writers, Constance Fenimore Wilson. Mm-hmm. And she was, to me, the most, the most consistently devoted over the course of her career to this idea of authorship and ambition, very serious idea of authorship. She was a close friend of Henry James and really his peer mm-hmm. and his colleague. And so I was very interested in, you know, sort of untangling that relationship and what it was like and figuring her out because there aren't a lot of materials that have survived. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was just such a great writer. I just Mm -hmm. loved her stories and couldn't believe that people didn't know about her. So I was able to publish a biography and also a collection of her stories. You do have a book coming out on August 21st, -hmm. although I'm luckily holding a copy in my hand right now. Meg, Joe, Beth, Amy, The Story of Little Women and Why It Still Matters. Tell us why you wrote the book. Uh, well, I had come off of writing this biography of Constance Fenimore Wilson. That was published in 2016, so not that long ago. No, no. And that took me many, many years to write. And plus, it was a book for a general audience, right? So being an academic, that was kind of a big leap for me to mm-hmm. figure out how to get readers who aren't academics interested. Because as academics, we're actually not taught how to read anything that people actually want to read, <laughs> right? So, um, so that was a big, you know, learning curve for me, learning how to tell a story, basically. Mm-hmm. And I had, while I was going through that process, I had started reviewing books, the kind of books that I guess I would be interested in maybe writing someday. And there were uh, some books about books, like biographies of books that really interested me. Mm-hmm. There was um, one by Rebecca Mead, My Life in Middlemarch, a really, oh, yeah. really nice book. I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. I would recommend it. And also um, Maureen Corrigan's book about the Great Gatsby was kind yeah. of another interesting iteration of that. And the one that I had originally read when I was doing my research on Wilson was Michael Gore's The Portrait of a Novel, which is about the mm-hmm. portrait of a lady, Henry James's novel. And so I thought, well, what a great way to write about literature for a wider audience. Because mm-hmm. I think it's hard for us as academics to sort of think about the work that we do as being of interest to people outside of academia. But this seemed to me the, a great format. Yeah. And I just one night was thinking, well, what novel would I ever write about that people would care about? Because I do a lot of work on unrecovered women writers or lesser-known women writers mm-hmm. who were really important in their day but have been buried and forgotten, like Wilson. And then I remember Little Women and remembered what it had meant to me when I read it in graduate school. And the next day I got up and I just Googled, you know, the publication date, 1868. It's like, oh my God, the 150th anniversary is coming up in three years. This was in 2015 when I came upon this idea. I thought, oh my gosh, I have to get moving. Mm, better get to the office. <laughs> better get moving. And so it's, yeah, so it, it happens much more quickly than my last book. Yeah. Um, but it, it really, in some ways, is a book that was much easier to write because there is so much out there right. about little women. Yeah. I was just astonished, in fact, how much there was. 
Well, I started reading it. I actually read the last chapter first, mm-hmm. the chapter on the Gilmore Girls and Little Women. Ah. And I do. I think the writing is wonderful. I think your writing is really engaging. Thank it's you. smart, but it's not that academic mode right. where it's very accessible. Yeah, very and accessible. I started with the first chapter, <laughs> as I was going to say, as most people do. But I had a very good friend in a book club for. 15 years who always read the last chapter first which made me crazy but anyway so and I too love it and it is our read-along for August yes. for the book oh, series great. Yeah. so yeah oh, that's exciting. we're really looking forward to more people oh, reading it absolutely wonderful yeah. and if we could ask one last question don't mean to put you on the spot but our read-along for July was March by Geraldine oh, Brooks okay. did you read March? When I was in graduate school, so a really long time ago. Yeah. yeah. Do you have I didn't any... reread it when I was writing this book. Yeah. But any... I, do, I do mention it, yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's a really, in looking at sort of spinoffs, adaptations, or what have you of Little Women, I think it's one of the most successful because it doesn't simply try to retell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, I remember being, you know, quite drawn to it and really enthralled at this sort of idea of taking a character who's kind of absent and unfamiliar and trying to flesh him out. It's a little hard for me, though, because I know so much about Bronson Alcott. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and that's not who Mr. March is yes, really in the yeah. book. Because in real life, of course, and to get back to your, your question of what you know, comparing the life to the art here. In real life, of course, Mr. Alcott, Bronson Alcott, never went to war. It was Louisa who went to war. Mm-hmm. She was a nurse. Right, yeah. yeah a nurse and, and got very, very yeah. ill, right? Right. Yeah, and that's why she came home and right. wrote hospital sketches. And, right. Right. Yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, I thought Marsh, the, the book, made him come off much better than the things I'd read about the real Browns and Alcott. Yeah, so. yeah I, I, there I would definitely say that there's a yeah, big difference between yeah. life and art. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, to give lie to Emily's one last question, if I may ask one more. <laughs> <laughs> what if, Are you um, able to share with us what you're working on next or what you have in mind coming up? Well, a huge departure in some respects. So I, but to go back to what I was saying about my interest in in women writers developing themselves as artists, thinking about making room in their life for themselves as artists and authors, that and also my interest in recovering lesser-known women writers. I was in Austria last summer teaching um, a course on the short story in Europe and wanted to include some American women writers who were expatriates from the 20th century. So Wilson was an expatriate writer in the 19th century. So I wanted to know, well, who were the who were the female Fitzgeralds and Hemingways, right? right? And I stumbled upon this writer, Kay Boyle. Have you ever heard of I her? No. Oh my gosh, she's so good. B-O-Y-L-E? So, B-O-Y-L-E. She wrote for The New Yorker and The Nation and other places. And what fascinates me about her is that she was writing about the rise of fascism in Europe. Mm. She uh, was writing about the beginning of the war because she lived over there for so long. And then she went back after the war and wrote about the occupation of Germany and the Nazi Mm. trials. And she did this in fiction, right? Mm -hmm. And she had six children. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So she's a very fascinating figure. Mm-hmm. Um, I love her writing. Her life is so amazing and dramatic and complicated and deals with all these issues that so interest me. 
So right now, I wouldn't say I'm writing a book. I'm just, I would say I'm falling down a rabbit hole with her <laughs> yeah. and getting really interested in doing research. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if, if that does turn into a book, it won't come out as quickly as this one. This, is, this yeah. would be a longer term project <laughs> yeah. for sure. Oh, great. Thanks for sharing that with us. We'll definitely yeah. check her out. And obviously yeah. with all the studying you've done, you've figured out how to be a an artist right. and a mother. Artist, you yes, know, a writer, a writer and a mother. Yeah. Yeah, well, my daughter's 14 now, and so when she was little, um, so I wrote my dissertation, which actually, and then turned it into a book, and it came out, like, right as my daughter was born, wow. so it was perfect timing, and then I took a break. <laughs> and Whatever uh, that means when you're a new mother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, new mom, yeah, still teaching, but a break from the writing, right. and the first project I did after that was actually an anthology I, I compiled together writings by American women on authorship Mm. from the 19th century who were talking about what it was like to be a writer and their aspirations and uh, the difficulties and you know so it's a very diverse collection but that seemed manageable to pull together pieces like that and then the Wilson book it came out in 2016 was the next thing but that yeah that took a lot longer so it became yeah in some ways I feel a little bit like Joe Marsh that I had to wait I'm just impressed by anybody who can be um, creative at the same time as having a full-time job and being a mother so good for you yeah it's it's definitely a a matter of compartmentalizing and multitasking and, and I've been very fortunate to get a couple of grants that have given me the time off from the the day job, the mm-hmm. teaching, and all of the departmental meetings and everything. Yeah. So that's been key to give me the time and space. Right. Well, Anne, thanks so much yeah. for taking the time to oh, talk with you. us after your already busy day right yeah, here at no, Orchard House. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, we didn't say that Anne was so generous with her time. She's been presenting today and did a book signing and everything and then sat down with us so we really yeah. appreciate it oh i could talk all day oh, all good. Women, I think. <laughs> yeah. that was a lot of fun <laughs> and good luck on the upcoming yeah. book tour yeah, yeah. well right. thanks for doing a read-along that's very cool yeah, absolutely yeah, thanks. yeah i look care. forward to hearing people's thoughts and everything yeah. that'd be great and next is our interview with jan turnquest the executive director at Louisa May Alcott's Orchard House. Hi, round two. Yes. Um, we just uh, we just corralled Jan, the executive director of the Orchard House. Yes, that's right. It's a very busy day here, very but busy. she's generously offered to sit down with us for a hot minute yes. <laughs> <laughs> to tell us about the Orchard House and maybe your role here. Yeah. And well, I, I joke and say executive director means you do anything. <laughs> <laughs> you fundraise, but if the toilet needs plunging, you do that. So it's, but we have a staff of 40, and oh, we wow. are open year-round, seven days a week. So it's a very busy place. Um, I think Louisa did this for us because Little Women is so popular. It's been translated in over 50 languages, mm-hmm. and we have visitors from all over the world. So that's probably why it's so busy. But this week, of course, is special because... Mr. Alcott started the Concord School of Philosophy and Literature as one of the first adult education programs in the country. Mm -hmm. And this week is really an homage to him. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we love having our adult education program. Were you here for some of it? Were you able to? We no, were we, we got up here just before we stepped in the door for the most part. Yeah. Because yeah. I didn't think I saw you in the yeah. session. And all of a sudden, here are these two faces. <laughs> 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 but you, you um, well, I don't know how long. Where are you from? We're from Guilford, Connecticut. Oh. Yeah. So are you staying in the area? Will you be able we're to We're just tomorrow? here for the we day. We're just here for oh, the day. Yeah. We've been doing a summer of little women. Oh. We did a read-along of Little Women in June. In July this month, we did a read-along of March by Geraldine Brooks. And then in August, we'll be doing a read-along of Anne's book. Ah, yes. Yeah. Meg, yes. Joe, Beth, Amy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. Well, I think that's wonderful. I think it's, it's great what you're doing. People have been so responsive to Little Women. We've heard so many stories of people who grew up reading it. Other folks who came to it a little bit later in life. Yeah, and, and we both read it for the first time as adults. Ah, uh, yeah. So it's been interesting. Some of our listeners, you know, who read it as children, and we even had one woman who's in the military, and she sent us a picture of her set of books that she has hauled around with her for eight oh, since yeah. she was eight years old, and she just was turning fifty, I think. Yeah. So it's been really fun to see people's pictures of the different versions of Little Women that mm-hmm. they just prize and just read over and over and then there's also women like us who came to it for the first time as adult readers if you give me your email address i'll have to send you a link to a documentary we just made about orchard house it's just a half hour piece but Mm -hmm. it really ties in a lot with what you're talking about Mm -hmm. what little women means to people and why orchard house is so important because when you love a book that much if you can come to the place where it was written and set Mm -hmm. and the place hasn't changed and the items in the place are theirs. Yeah. It's really like a touchstone for people. Yeah. Absolutely. So do you mind my asking what your background is and what drew you to being the executive director of the Orchard House? I was an English and comparative literature double major. So I've had a lot of love of literature, but biography was really always my favorite thing to read, mm-hmm. even as a young child. Mm-hmm. And when I moved to Concord, the woman who was then in charge of Orchard House, they didn't have the executive director position. It was a little different, the structure of it. But she wondered if I got to meet her early on when I first moved to Concord, and she wondered if I could just give tours. So I started giving tours when I was in my 20s. And years passed, and I became the education coordinator and did other things, living history. I did a lot of portrayals. And eventually developed a one-woman portrayal of Louisa May Alcott. Oh, that's fantastic. uh, Which I've done all over the place and loved doing. And then, actually, someone asked me if I would consider becoming the director here, or at least applying. And it's a long story as to why you don't want the long version. But because I hadn't particularly thought that I would want to do this job. But I love the place so much. And there was sort of a need for someone who had a lot of knowledge about the house itself, about the town. There there was just a lot to to recommend getting someone with a lot of experience. They were doing interviews at that time. It was a national search for a director, and they were interviewing people from all across the nation. And they were just thinking, oh, there's a big learning curve for those folks. And here's yeah. somebody that, <laughs> yeah. Right. So I said yes, and then then I was director. Yeah. <laughs> that was in 1999. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm still Good executive director, <laughs> which, as I say, it means fundraising and it means taking care of the smallest problem that yeah. you might run into. Right. Yeah. Right. But we have a wonderful staff, just a wonderful staff. 
That's and that great. makes the job worth doing. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. really does. I mean, I love the visitors, too. Mm-hmm. And the stories. I don't know if you heard Anne speak about the Little Women 150 blog that's going to feature a different person every week starting the last week in July. And I was the first one to write for that. Oh, fabulous. And within that blog post, I told one of my stories that I just, I still can feel and see this whole thing happen. It was about seven o'clock at night. We close at five. (laughs) So I had just put on the alarm and I'm going out the door and I see this car pull up and this woman gets out of it with this look on her. Oh, and she, you could tell she was Asian, but I didn't know from where. Somehow, you know, she got out of the car just looking and we had, we started a little conversation. I don't really remember. I might've just said hello. And Mm -hmm. then somehow I found out very quickly that, oh, she had just come from the airport her day to visit Orchard House was going to be the next day. Her daughter was going to meet her, but she couldn't wait. She had to come and see it. And then she told me this story about how she was Korean. She had read Little Women in Korean and said it saved her life twice. Mm. The first time she read it, she was a young girl. She did not in any way think that she had any future. She didn't feel important. She felt like, you know, I'm a girl, I'm nothing. Then she read Little Women. And Joe March transformed her thinking. She eventually became a professor. And then ultimately she um, married and had children. And then when her husband died, or I don't know if he died. Actually, when she lost her husband, I really don't know what happened to her. But she said she just felt so ashamed. Mm. And then she read Little Women again. And this time focused on Marmy. And she said suddenly she had the strength. Hmm. And that is yeah. one of millions of stories we hear yeah. here at the house. How can you not love yeah. working for a place where that's an experience that can just happen right. on a daily basis? When you're leaving work at night. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. never know. Right. Yeah. And it's just yeah. amazing it's to fantastic. me. So yeah. I love it. No, yeah, that's yeah. great. That's great. Wonderful. Now, you have a series coming up in September, too. Or I think the there's, celebra- a, there's a, a celebration day of the day. September 30th okay. is the actual day when Little Women was published. Okay. And we will have a, a big celebration here at the house. And we also are, prior to that date, starting this process of what I'm calling a celebratory read. We'll have guides from Orchard House reading up to a certain point. Then we'll have people in other countries reading. It's all coordinated, so it just continues on. They will film their readings, and then we'll put the whole thing together. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, that's wonderful. So that's kind of exciting, yeah. too. Yeah. Right? Oh, that's, that's great. great. So things like that. I mean, there's more. There's so much going on on a daily basis. And, of course, the, the launch of our documentary was part of this celebration as well. This was the best year to do that. And so we've been very busy. So what's the best way for our listeners to follow what's happening at Orchard House? Do you have a particular form of social media that's best or your website? Well, we're, we have a website, mm-hmm. louisamayalcott.org. We have a Facebook page. We're on Twitter. And then there's a special website that my assistant made called Little Women. 150.org and on that website you you can find out about events that are going on all over the place not just in Concord oh that's great okay so we'll put all of that in the show notes for people if you didn't catch it with your pen and paper (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, um, speaking of having to do everything from fundraising to plunging the toilet, we know that you are on a timeline today. Yes. So we really appreciate you popping in to talk yes. with us. Thank you so much. Well, it's exciting. It's fun that, that people are doing things like this now. I think it's absolutely great. And I just didn't know you were coming. So it was really a nice surprise. <laughs> great. great. And I hope you. you come back. We will. Yeah, we Kilford, will. Connecticut. Yes. We so, will definitely. Yeah. too yeah. far. No, it was oh, a couple no. hours. Yeah. Yeah. And we like to drive, so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now I'll give you my card, and then you can contact me when you're coming back. Great. <laughs> Thank you so much. And all we'll right. give your listeners all that other information, and yes. we'll invite them to come to Orchard House whenever they can. Absolutely. Great. Great. All right. Thanks, Thank everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.